0: Welcome to Unbroken Jars. I'm Doug. And I'm Randy. And this is a podcast where we explore individuals' real-life stories and real faith. You're listening to Unbroken Jars, episode 13. Broken, but beautiful. The light of Jesus shines through the darkness, and we carry this light in unbroken jars of clay. We have a life and a story about our faith journey but we're not struck down or destroyed. Our stories shine the light on Jesus and His power. Our faith walk has forever been shaped by the life of one man, Jesus. Jesus continues to use real life stories of those around us to mold us. We dive into this world by investigating, interviewing, and walking alongside real people who share their stories, their faith stories of struggle, sin, joy, and victory. And how God is leading them will help shape your faith journey in unbroken jars of clay. Today, J.P. Conway is joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. Now, I know J.P. because my wife and I used to attend the church where he and his family are a part of. And my brother and sister-in-law, um, still go there. That's Ackland Avenue. Um, and not, uh, not long ago, my brother-in-law Spencer, um, said I really like unbroken jars podcast. And you know, I, I know someone that has a great story It's JP. Um, and it wasn't long after that he sent me JP's book on uh, broken, but beautiful. And, and as I've read that I've, I've heard bits and pieces of his story. Um, and through my reading, it's become evident that just like Unbroken Jars podcast, JP is wanting readers to know all people have a story, and that story, while riddled with brokenness, can still make for a beautiful church. So JP, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to join us, and I want to I welcome you today to Unbroken Jars. Oh, thanks for having me.
1: JP, maybe just as way of introduction, and and including myself and those listening, because um, we just met today for the first time. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family, and maybe what you're actually doing in Nashville, Tennessee. Kind of what you're, sure. Uh, just a little bit of background on the family.
2: Well, I'm married to my wife Beth. Um, we live in Nashville, Tennessee. She's a biology professor at Lipscomb University. Um, I teach there as well. I'm a faculty affiliate there at Lipscomb teach some in the theology and ministry department. We have three daughters and, uh, our oldest just became a teenager the other day. So we've got a 13 year old in the house. So our girls are uh-huh. seven, nine and 13. And so we're in those stages of carpools and gymnastics practice and piano lessons and walks around the neighborhood. And like a lot of families, we got a quarantine puppy last summer so um, sucker yeah i know i can't believe i fell for that so (laughs) that's very much the life stage we're in i drive the minivan and doing the life
0: yeah actually that's funny because uh randy's son john did like a minivan (laughs) a a minivan dad uh uh calendar
1: yes yes (laughs) so
0: too bad we didn't we didn't cross that path before <laughs> with you, man. Could have made the calendar. <laughs> made the calendar. Um. Yeah. So so you talked about just just briefly before we get in, into this you, you talked about your wife being in the sciences. Yeah. So I, I read something and I don't remember where it was and this is kind of jumping ahead but y'all do some work together on that overseas, right? I mean, you go and do some um yeah, we balance do. of
2: so it's, Tim, Can you tell of, just a, a little bit about that? Yeah. Sure. So um, with my background being ministry and her background being science, specifically, she's a cancer researcher. Um, we have felt ourselves caught up in a lot of the faith and science conversations. But specifically, when those conversations come up, we realize a lot of times we have different concerns uh, of what's going yeah. on in the conversation and like what's really important. I mean, we both believe in truth. We both believe in God but trying, you know, our fault lines, so to speak, are oftentimes in different places. And uh, Lipscomb has a property in Florence, Italy, and they were trying to get some travel courses and stuff happening. And one day she came home and said, what if we took students over there and we kind of walked the trail of Galileo and we studied Galileo and we talked about faith and science and then we could do some stuff over there that you should just do when you're in Italy, right? So we've done that trip twice and have plans uh, fingers crossed, Lord willing to do that again this August if, if COVID permits. So that would be our third time. So it's a 10 day trip. And, um, basically our big message with faith and science is you don't have to choose between faith and science. You can have both. And, um, right. I would, I would assume in Huntsville, you have a lot of scientists at your church with the
0: NASA. Yes. And yeah, we're yes. filled with yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> if uh, she'd be right at home here, <laughs> um, but uh I well i, I appreciate you sharing that because that that wasn't something we pre-planned but i just thought man i thought that was really cool that y'all were doing that because that is they seem to be at odds in theory so i like that you're partnering them and marrying them um in, in a marriage that works out well <laughs> um so so kind of part of this um that that Peaks our interest with you is, is about your childhood, yeah. your upbringing. You you mentioned this a lot in your book, but tell us a little bit about your childhood upbringing and, and then specifically uh, mm-hmm. about your mom.
2: Yeah. So I had a very idyllic childhood up until my mother's death. I grew up outside of Nashville, um, kind of in the country back then. And I have a lot of memories of playing barefooted out in the yard with all the neighborhood kids. And it seemed like everybody in my world went to school together and went to church together. And, uh, I did all the little league sports and went out for ice cream, whether we won or lost and just a very idyllic childhood. And then when I was eight years old, uh, my family went down to Alabama on a Labor Day weekend to visit my paternal grandfather. Who had Alzheimer's and was in a facility down there? We'd go down a couple times a year to visit him, and uh, we were just kind of doing a Saturday afternoon drive that Labor Day weekend when we were sideswiped by another vehicle, and uh, my mother was killed instantly. Um, I didn't know it at the time that she had passed, um, but I found out later that night when uh, my grandparents came down from the Nashville area and they were with me as, as the chaplain told me what had happened. And I'll tell you as an aside, um, that cemented in me a lifelong respect for chaplains who were in those situations. I mean, I, I don't know that guy's name. I can barely remember his face and I'm sure he had hundreds, if not thousands of other conversations like that throughout his work. But you know, we show up at times we didn't plan and sometimes deliver bad news, but somebody needs to do that, and he did it gracefully. And I don't know, that's just a memory that comes up now of, of how that happened. But I remember, um, you know, a very vulnerable moment for me and in, in my, my maternal grandparents were there with me and uh, were hugging on me as I was coming to terms with this news. But I remember um, my instinctive kind of eight-year-old plea was who's going to be my mother. Mm. And, um, and I remember my, my grandmother hugging on me and saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be with you. It's going to be all right. Um, but that, that plea kind of very much summarized my childhood. i I look back on that now. You know, I talk about this with people a lot talking about grief. We process grief in different ways at different stages of our life. I have found I process it as a child. I process it as a teenager. I process it as a young adult. Every time one of my daughters hits the age of eight, I process it again, you know, Oh yeah. but as I look back on it now, it was very much as, as my world was rocked. It was okay. The survival instinct took over. So it was like, who's going to be my family because I have Mm -hmm. to have a family to survive. So who's going to be my family? And, I really didn't ask at that point. There weren't a lot of God questions. It wasn't why did God allow this to happen or does God exist. You know, some of that stuff came later. At the point, it was just like I've got to get to the next day. I've got to get to the next 15 minutes. Where is my support system going to come from? And um, my father was a rock during those those times and. I mean, I talk to him almost every day, even now, and uh, my older brother um, was a rock during those times, and then later, I got a pretty amazing stepmother out of all this, but by and large, that question was answered um, through the church. I mean, I just, Mm. I think um, most Americans, um, most people in the West have some type of nostalgia for church. And if you get them talking about it, it, it'll come back. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of bad memories that sometimes people can have about church splits and hypocrisy and different things. But I think there's there's a little nostalgia that we all have. And I tell you, my heart comes alive when I think about summer VBS (laughs) and running around with my friends and drinking Kool-Aid and having ice cream socials and church camp and all of that. And, um, I know we spend a lot of time as church planning all those events and doing all that stuff. And I think we sometimes wonder, is it making a difference? What are we accomplishing here? And, um, I just know that, that for me, all of those things, when I was eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, specifically in those years, all those things were connecting me to other adults. And, um, I I tell my students and I I, I tell young people I I work with, I say, I feel really blessed because I grew up where hundreds of people thought I was awesome. (laughs) And (laughs) I think a lot of kids sadly grow up and maybe no one thinks they're awesome or just one or two. But I grew up where as soon as the car pulled into the church parking lot, I would jump out of the car and I would run to the door and I would open it. And people would just immediately turn and look and say, Joe Paul, how are you? And I would get all my hugs in and people would pat me on the head and they would teach my Sunday school class. And it's hard for me to think about like one specific person because there were 25, 30, 35 adults probably that singularly invested in me during those years. And So my story is very much the story of the church kind of collectively raising me as their son.
0: Yeah, that's uh, so. So honestly, that that was part of my next question. And I think maybe you've answered a piece of that. And that is, do you remember what it was like adjusting to not having your mom there? Do you remember that adjustment? Because you and, and maybe you back this up just a little bit, because obviously you figured out the answer going Mm -hmm. through that part of it. Um, and I'm sure later on that affects where you are right now, which is where we'll get to, but I'm interested to know after you lost your mom, you talked about the chaplain. You spoke to that when he came in and, and the impact that, uh, that that have and, and what respect you have for chaplains now. And I can't imagine walking into that scenario, but even so I know that, um, there had to be some transition right after losing your mom, right? Into that process of realization that the church was there for you as well. What was some of that transition like, um, and adjustment to life like?
2: Well, you know, looking at it now through adult eyes, I definitely went through the stages of grief. There was a lot of denial in the days afterwards. There was a lot of waking up in the morning. And there would be that five to 10 second hope that it was all a dream and it wasn't real. And that went on for weeks. Like, Oh, maybe my mother's in the next room and this was all a dream. And so there, there was a lot of denial. There was a lot of negotiating. There was a lot of, um, in my head, I would spend a lot of time going back in time even stuff like if I had just asked, to stop the car or maybe if I'd said I got to go to the restroom and we had stopped at a McDonald's, maybe that wouldn't have happened, you know? And so there was a lot of negotiating that, that, that took place in my head. And then it was, it was, you know, when you're going through that as a child, it's just hard to describe it because you don't have words to explain your experience. But I remember this is going to seem like a really unlikely source, but it was probably seven or eight years later as a teenager, I was watching the romantic comedy Sleepless in Seattle with Tom Hanks. I don't know if you remember this film. Yes, yes. but it, yeah, it, it starts off. I mean, it's a romantic comedy, but it, but it starts off kind of sad because he's he's a widower, and um, he calls in this this radio show, and he's talking about how he lost his wife, and he he's in Seattle, and the the therapist on the phone. It's like one of these nighttime calling shows. Says, "So what are you going to do?" And he said, uh, "I'm going to." I'm going to force myself to get out of bed and I'm going to tell myself to breathe in and out all day. And then hopefully I'll get to the point where I won't have to force myself to get out of bed and I won't have to remind myself to breathe in and out all day. And uh, I remember when I heard that quote years later, once again, unlikely source, but I remember thinking that's totally what it felt like the first year to just force yourself to get yeah. through it. And I didn't know any different because it's what everyone around me was doing. They were just forcing themselves to get through it. Dad was getting up every day and going to work and he was a school teacher. Um, And people were there for me. Like they told me it was okay to cry and they told me it's okay to say it's hard. Um, So dad was definitely emotionally present and other people in my family, Mm -hmm. my grandparents. We weren't the most emotional family, but it wasn't one of these "Hey, buck up and never cry" type of things either. We were probably somewhere in the middle, but everyone just kept going, and no one made excuses, and no one, no one ever made excuses for me. Like no one ever said, "Well, you know, he lost his mom, so it's okay if he acts this way every now and then." You know, no one ever. (laughs) You know, everyone loved me, and they were compassionate. But um, anyway everyone was around me just, just kind of moving on. And so over time I realized that you can make community if you work at it. So I realized there wasn't like one other woman that could be my mother, but collectively all the women at church together, you know, combined with my Mm -hmm. grandmother and, you know, ultimately my new stepmother who is still an amazing part of my life, but collectively all of these people could fill that role and take care of right. me and i began to realize that it's not it's not what i want but it's not what anybody wanted <laughs> but the support system is there it's there
1: yeah was and i guess this kind of goes a different direction jp but i know I you mentioned earlier that you were too young initially to even think about how god fits in all this but was there a did there come a time at some point in your faith walk? How did this, your loss of your mother, did you have to, did you struggle with that any with God? Uh, and how did you work through all that?
2: Um, I think the main, so in terms of how I process pain and suffering in the existence of God, I think one of the big impacts of, of my, my mother's death was I felt things and interpreted things very deeply from an early age. And so I have friends who may be in their early mid twenties or even some of them in the early forties. And they're like, what's the meaning of life? And they're really wrestling with these things for the first time. And I'm like, Oh, I started wrestling with the meaning of life when I was eight. (laughs) And in some of these, you know, my, (laughs) my brother, um, really insightful guy, but he, I always joke that Ecclesiastes is like his book because I felt like when we were just having conversations as brothers, when he would have been just 10 or 11 or 12, he was almost like a walking quotation from Ecclesiastes. Like, like what is the <laughs> point of all this? And we would have...
0: Meaningless.
2: Meaninglessness. Like we would have honest conversations at that age. So I was wrestling with it forever. And so, you know, this is not going to seem nearly at the same level, but when I went through... Normal adolescent experiences later, I experienced them in very different ways with this backdrop. So, for example, when I got cut from the basketball team in seventh grade, it was a devastating experience for me. And uh, I look back on that. And I'm like, why was that such a big I mean, it was like a huge like Titanic type of experience. Mm. And I think it was because I was asking such deep questions about where I fit into the world and where, where could meaning be found? And so I can't remember who said this, but basically humans are meaning making creatures. Like we wake up and go about our day trying to make meaning. And so it very, my tragedy, the tragedy of my childhood intensified my desire to make meaning. And when I, when I struggled to make meaning, I was like on hyper alert. And so I went through this very intense experience of trying to find the presence of God and the fundamental nature of human identity when I got cut from the basketball team and then a very <laughs> wow. transformative thing happened the next year was I made the basketball team um and realized that didn't solve all my problems mm. and realized oh I I can make the middle school basketball team at this little high school, but like I'm still not Michael Jordan and <laughs> this this still doesn't solve all of my problems and and that was really when my <laughs> spiritual awakening happened uh when I began to wrestle like what is the meaning of life and where is God and all this and the spiritual awakening kind of happened when I was fourteen and honestly that's where I felt the call to ministry was was at the age of fourteen where I was like i'm I'm going into ministry because um there is no other foundational true source for meaning than the risen Lord.
0: Mm. I, l- listening to you talk, some of the, um, some of the things you're saying, I don't know how, if you've worked with grief share at all. Um, Randy and I over the last year have been able to do, and I brought it in a couple of years ago and then Randy's joined with me on that. And it, it's it's strange how people going through pain, suffering. I know this sounds weird, but it's yeah. it's good to be around them because yeah. there's a rawness and a realness that comes out. And a lot of the things that you're saying, I hear those things, right? Yeah, I hear as you've 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 walked through some of this and the depth that you process. You you know, you're talking about processing through life, and at fourteen, you know, hearing this calling. Um, That's some of that process that I hear, Um, and it's impressive.
2: Well, we were Uh, talking
0: about this at our church
2: the other day um, about seeing um, pain and suffering as an opportunity to grow, and we just said it out loud and acknowledged it. If you have the choice between hanging out with the cancer survivor or the person who has never had any problems in their life Like every time you're going to choose the cancer survivor because there's a lot more depth and oftentimes there's a lot more joy and um, people that have never had any hard things. And if someone's listening to this and they're like, I don't have a big story. I mean, average life is hard enough, especially the last year with what we've all collectively (laughs) been through. You know, it's not a contest who has the most tragedy, but people that have never had any hard things, um, they're not always enjoyable to be around. (laughs)
0: Wait a minute. You're talking about me. Um, (laughs) But you know, that, that is really true. Uh, Strangely enough, that is part of what the appeal is even for this podcast for your book Mm -hmm. is there's a realization that, that when people have been through especially strenuous life events, whether that be loss of someone or, or tragedy in their own life or addiction or just struggle you, it's it's almost like this contrast of good and evil put side by side, and it's mm-hmm. so much easier to realize the good yeah. uh, when they're when they're placed like that. Um, and it, it's it really is true that I, I, I prefer to be around people not like me. <laughs> um, well, uh, of, when you look, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Jeffy.
2: Well, part of it too is <clears throat> I don't mean to imply that people that figure out how to get through pain and suffering are in some ways tougher. Like I never fell for the narrative of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or toughen up and you'll get through it. I knew mm-hmm. infinitely as an eight year old, I can't go th- get through this on my own. And I, I never tried <laughs> to get through it on my own. Like we have to have each other to get through it. Like we're social creatures I've always felt like I had a deep need for community and because of my experience with saying, I'm going to, I'm going to lean on this community and then them being there for me. It, it wove into me this deep trust in community uh, where sadly other friends of mine, because of their experiences, sometimes sadly because of abuse and other things, they have a default suspicion towards community and I understand how they get there. But I feel very blessed because for me it was a default trust towards community, and even now when community fails me, I'm like, ah, that's that's an aberration. Like over time, community will be there for me, and I just I keep investing, I keep trusting, and that's how it's worked in my life.
0: Yeah, I I see that. Um, I, I have I, you 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 briefly mentioned this and hit on it, especially with the fourteen. Um, but uh, when you look back, are, are there moments that you can point to in your life that you would say are kind of catalysts or watershed moments where your eyes were open? You, you mentioned fourteen, or or along the way, is there somebody or somebody's? You you, you talk about a global perspective of the church as a whole, mm-hmm. but I'm sure there are more influencers as well. Are, are there people or uh, or events that you can point to that that you would say, you know, this really shaped my faith journey? And allowing me through this process, but also allowing me to become the man I am. I think of two particular
2: stories, one is, so three years after I lost my mother, my dad remarried, um, wonderful stepmother, got two stepbrothers out of that deal that, you know, are still a very active part of my life. And growing up in a blended family, I learned, um, well... I have friends that in their twenties, they're like, Oh, I finally came to terms with the fact that my family's not perfect. And I'm like, Oh, I've always known that <laughs> because in a blended family, <laughs> you come into it saying, Oh man, we are not perfect. And we, we know that going in and, you know, there's a band aid on it from the very beginning, but I also learned being part of a blended family, you get out of it, what you put into it. <clears throat> and if you invest yeah. in it, And you learn to accept people despite their flaws. Um, And you say, we're just going to keep pretending like we're real family. We're not real family. Like we're not biologically related. But we're just going to keep pretending that we are. And we're going to keep acting like we are. And someday it won't be pretending because we'll actually be family. And Mm – and that, that was my experience. I know not everybody has had that experience, but that was my experience with a blended family to where now I call my stepmother mom, I call my stepbrothers brothers, and there is not that delineation between biological and non-biological. And, and that showed me with the church, with even other forms of social community, like if we if we put the time into it and if we make the investment, there is a there's a deep reward um there's a deep uh there's a there's a blessing there that can come from that and and the second thing the first church i worked with coming out of college was was in the connecticut area and that was the first church i had been at i was a youth minister and that was the first church i'd been at where there were a lot of people that came to the church without their family i had grown up at a church where Mm, most people came to church as family units and then they sat as family units. This church, (laughs) a lot of kids, I, I remember I did the math on it and it was about half of my youth group came to church with both biological parents. So the other half, you know, they just came with their mom or they just came with their dad. And there was a lot that just came with their uncle or aunt or grandparents. And then there were a lot, I couldn't figure out when or why they started coming but just random people would just kind of pick them up. And and it really, and I want to say this kindly, like the family, the biological family, the nuclear family, however you want to say it, like it's a blessing from God. It's a design from God. I believe in all that. Um, But there can be an idolatry of nuclear family. um, And for those that don't have it, because of life tragedies like I had or other stuff of or, or brokenness, um, the church is there to fill all those gaps. And, um, you know, there was a young man um, who I still keep in touch with. I mean, he's not a young man anymore, but his name's Jarrell. And he had a key to my house, and uh, he would always call me dad um, when I was his youth minister. And those of you that have had those experiences, like, that was a transformative experience because I was like, this is evidence yet again that when biological family, for a million different reasons, fails, um, the church is there to fill in those gaps, and it's real, and it's powerful, and it's not just a romantic thing in the book of Acts. Like, it's something we can actually access now.
1: Yeah. I know I know you've, this, you've got this book out, uh, J.P., we've alluded to it a couple times, Broken but Beautiful, and we're talking about the church, but what would you say, you know, maybe there's some listeners out there that have been hurt by the church, mm-hmm. been disillusioned by the church. Um, how do you, what, was, what would be some things you might say to them to say, hey, there's still beauty there and there's still meaning there for you?
2: Yeah. The first thing I'd want to say is just, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry for the things that people have experienced. And y- you mentioned grief share a moment ago and just the overall idea of grief. Like my first instinct when, cause as a minister, you guys probably know this too. Like when I rub elbows with people in the community and they find out I'm a, I'm a minister, um, they then they want to tell me all their thoughts on church and at least half the time it's not very good
0: (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) and um that's true
2: and so there's a defensive spirit that creeps up in me where i want to defend the church and i've never found that to be helpful um (laughs) but instead i just want to grieve with people and just tell Mm -hmm. them how sorry i am and part of this i cut my teeth in ministry once again my, my first ministry was a church in connecticut that was grieving because i followed a minister that had a public moral failure and so i entered that church in a time of grief and then right as i enter the boston globe is breaking the catholic priest abuse scandal in new england it's a very predominantly catholic area whether you're catholic or not just the catholic church kind of shapes the overall religious vibe and there was just grief everywhere and I, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, the profession I've gotten myself into is no longer a trusted profession. And just wanting to grieve with people and just say, hey, I understand the brokenness. And so you, know, you ask what, what I would say to people. You know, what I do in the book is the first third of the book, just acknowledge all the brokenness and admit the brokenness. And I've had a lot of people's A lot of people get nervous about, well, you know, I don't want to just pile on like it feels awkward to talk bad about the church. We just need to name it. But then, yeah, I think if we transition, I think if we have a historical awareness and if we were just doing a pro con list (laughs) and we had two columns on a piece of paper, I have friends argue with me about this. The pros of the church outweigh the cons like when we do the math because you know a friend of mine like wants to say well how we have the inquisition and all these wars and I'm like yeah but christians invented the hospitals and fundamentally changed how we look at healthcare and then I have another friend that says well the christians perpetuated slavery and then I would say yeah but the christians also abolished slavery you know so it's like we we have two sides <laughs> exactly. of this list and jockeying back and forth and um i mean i had students disagree with me on this just recently but I think the pros outweigh the cons at the end of the day. And so, and when I ask people to share their experiences with the good and bad of church, I find that those experiences are often connected. And maybe this goes back to some of my childhood experiences, but when you endure the bad, when you persevere through the broken in community, it becomes beautiful. And so some of my closest friendships um, are with people from churches from seasons where we endured a church split. But mm. I made it through it with this group of people or there was a public moral failure by one of the ministers or one of the church leaders or someone left their wife or someone spent time in prison. Like, But we made it through it together. We persevered. And even though it was a broken experience, there was a beauty that came out of that.
1: Yeah. I I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, uh, JP, but uh, I'm sure. I mean, I, I've seen the cover; it looks great. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, but I did. I was perusing through it, and, and there's some, some really good stuff there. And I'm planning on reading it uh, next year. And so, if people want to get a copy of your book. Where do they find that? Also, your work that you're doing—you have like a website, a Facebook page that maybe people have want to get more information. Can go to?
2: Yeah, you can. You can get the book on Amazon, or you can uh, order it from the publisher, uh, Stock Publisher. The book is broken but beautiful. Why church is still worth it? And to continue this conversation, because as I as I start talking about the book with people and have been speaking on this topic for about two years now, I just found that. There were so many people that said, finally, someone's admitting it's broken. And then there's another group of people saying, finally, <laughs> someone's finally acknowledging it's beautiful. It's not just broken. And, and um, I found that people were really energized by this conversation. So my friend Drew, who's also a minister here in Nashville, we started a podcast um, some months ago where we just have people come on and talk about the broken and the beautiful parts of their church experience. Um so my website is jpconway.org, jpconway.org, um, where I occasionally make some blog posts, but also have connections to to resources that I've put out.
0: Okay. JB, I, I appreciate what you're doing, and mm-hmm. and, and part of this is mm-hmm. is the interaction I have with both young adults and just church people. It's like it's interesting to hear how even those who are involved in church are, are I guess angry at it almost because of, of how broken it seems. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I appreciate about what you're talking about is I think what the intent of Jesus tried to present over and over is that, yeah, those are my people. Those are the people I choose because that's what makes this whole thing beautiful. Yeah. And, And I appreciate that you present that not only in the book, but, um, I, I personally love Ackland Avenue. I love the people there. I have a long time connection there and I appreciate the work that you're doing there. And I hear, you know, obviously my brother-in-law and sister-in-law go there and, and I know you're really close with Spencer. And, um, I, I just appreciate you, um, and your heart and, and, and that church's heart to be honest um, and, and how they've always loved that community.
2: Well, Um, it's kind of you say that, and you mentioned working with young people, you know, one of, one of the things I've, I've realized just the last couple of years, like I grew up hearing how great the church was now, oftentimes that might've been slightly sectarian, but I grew up with a lot of how great the church was. And then I think some people, there was a corrective where people said, maybe we're talking about the church more than Jesus. So let's just, let's talk about Jesus instead of the church. But Mm -hmm. here's what I've discovered. College students, they've grown up hearing about Jesus. They haven't heard much about the church. And so when I stand up and say, the church is the greatest social movement the world has ever known. No one has ever told them that. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's a lot of opportunity there to, to, it's a Jesus first message but I think there's an opportunity to teach and talk about church to young people in ways that they've never heard. And I'm really excited about it.
0: Yeah. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on. I I just want to take um, one minute. I, I'd, I'd just love to to pray. Pray a blessing over what the work you're doing. Pray a blessing over you and your family. Let's just pray. God, We uh, I'm grateful for JP. I'm grateful for the work that you've chosen him to do. I'm grateful for the story that he had, as as difficult as it has been growing up, and the experiences that he had. I'm I'm glad that you chose him um, because um, because of the words he's speaking now of 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 the beautiful nature of the church for which you intended and which has been used, even though it's been broken at times. Um, Father, we're thankful for all the stories that we have and and how you uh, choose to use all of them. Uh, we're thankful for life. We just pray a special blessing over JP and his family. Pray for the work that they're doing both in Nashville, um, on the campus at Lipscomb and in Italy as well. We just pray that your hands are all over everything that they touch. Um, we're thankful for your love in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Again, we want to thank you for being here. Our stories of brokenness and struggle and failures and sin um, help, help others know that they're not alone. And, and while um, we as a church are imperfect and broken, God has the ability to take our stories and make it into a story that shines a light back on Jesus. And that, that's a beautiful thing. Um, It's our hope that the people listening to this will find confidence in knowing that God can and will use your story, if you're willing to share it. Thank you for listening today. We appreciate your comments and feedback on Unbroken Jars podcast. Please understand that our goal is always to honor God by the experiences of real life stories and real faith that you hear on this podcast. May God bless your life as you live out your story of real faith in your own settings.